You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. How's all that cash in your pocket? Something's burning. I don't think it's a hole in my pocket. I think it's just the cash itself. How much cash do you have? I'm going to check my wallet. <laughs> oh, in my wallet? Yeah. I usually try to keep 20 to $40 cash. Okay, I have 36. Yeah, so there you go. You're in you're in the zone. Is that typical or do you do you carry more sometimes? I usually or? don't carry any cash at all. <laughs> yeah. I carry it mostly for cash tips, I think, for like, you know, in winery tasting rooms sure. and bars and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I I could see that being helpful. Cash is a it's a yeah. big topic right now because of inflation, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I I think about it all the time. It doesn't feel very great to have appreciable cash as part of your portfolio right now. Yeah. So you're post fi a couple of years here and yeah. you use the bucket system, right? The Effectively, bucket. I guess. Yeah. Yep. So you have stocks in one bucket, you have your fixed income, your bonds, let's say in another, and then you have cash. Are you treating cash as a separate bucket there? I mean, I think it's all just kind of labels at this point. I, what I usually say is my portfolio is 70-30, where 70% is equities and 30% is fixed income. And that's really divided between about 25% uh, treasuries and bond funds and 5% in cash, which is effectively a couple of years worth of expenses at this stage. And that's what I try to maintain, generally speaking. How'd you come up with a couple of years? Ah, uh, some kind of finger to the wind estimate, seeing what other people did. I know Fritz Gilbert Retirement Manifesto has always advocated for three years or more. Some traditional retirees obviously keep a lot more than that. And none of that felt, you know, going far out there, it never felt very good. Inflation risk is a very real thing. And of course, we'd rather have money in the portfolio doing something, uh, even if it's part of a bond allocation where it may not be expected to make big returns, but it's not sitting in a money market checking account losing money. So I guess at this stage of the game, it's an element of managing sequence risk, uh, which point Karsten will tell me I'm market timing because I am and I want to talk about that. <laughs> But it's effectively the pot of money that we use to pay ourselves monthly, just like we were getting a paycheck. And I try to keep it within a certain range. I thought you were going to say that you matched it to the average bear market. Yeah, I mean, that was part of the thought process way back when. And I think you and I have talked about this before. This whole somewhere between two and three years feels pretty good for that reason. That's part of the justification. But yeah, I don't always answer as cleverly as I should. No, I just want, I wondered because, you know, the more I've researched bear markets lately, uh, yeah. the more I realize, okay, well, maybe two years is not like, it's not all that conservative, actually. It's kind of an aggressive allocation because, yeah, it's one thing to technically come out of a bear market, but it's another for your portfolio to recover to a state where you actually want to start making some draws on the stock portion, right? Start cascading the and refilling the buckets. That's right. But on the same note, you know, a number of the people who we follow and value their feedback, people like Karskin Nieska, you know, they don't advocate keeping a big bucket. They say, you know, the, the, the sequence risk calculations include, and I'm paraphrasing here, these are my words, you know, withdrawing from your assets periodically as you go and having a system for that is kind of the best practice that's recommended. Yeah. One of the reasons I, Laura and I have been using his uh, safe withdrawal rate toolbox. And one of the great things about this is that it gives you the fail safe rate 
of withdrawal. So, you know, we're looking at that number saying, oh, as long as we can maintain the withdrawal rate, like under this percentage, it's even going to weather the, the worst case scenarios, you know, like yeah. the Great Depression scenarios, you know, stagflation scenarios. So that's there is some comfort in that. Oh, I agree. And it's funny how easy it is to put this stuff out of your mind because, you know, you and I talked about the safe withdrawal rate toolbox, you know, a year, two years or more ago before yeah. we were even having these conversations for the show. And it's easy how quickly you forget the details of that. So just, you know, you and I having the chance to talk with him made me go back to my toolbox and go through it again and maybe make some little adjustments. And, you know, I still um, I find myself sitting there actually feeling relieved. Yeah. that I'm being a little too conservative <laughs> and a little conservatism and cushion is not a bad thing. But when I look at those worst cohorts and those fail safes, even with high valuations, you know, the CAPE ratio being really high, I actually feel a lot better about holding less cash. Yeah. So recently you and I met with uh, this certified financial planner and uh, yeah. one of his recommendations, uh, the, you know, next action item set for me was to build up my emergency fund. When I think of holding cash, I think of emergency funds. When oh, I yeah. think of talking to financial advisors, some of their first advice is always the make sure you have an emergency fund, you know, and I've heard anywhere from three to six to, you know, eight, 12 months of cash in this emergency fund. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, so I've always been an advocate of emergency funds with some kind of guidelines around it. Maybe you can't save three to six months early in your career, but you know, having that proverbial thousand dollars to weather some you know, unexpected expenses, and then as your career progresses a little, maybe three months, and then particularly if you're in a job where a traditional job, and we'll come back to business, you know, personal businesses like yours, but if you have a job that you couldn't immediately replace, you know, in a couple of months and maybe six months would feel better than in terms of the type of emergency fund to have. And I'll be honest, that's exactly what I did uh, as my career progressed. And I thought started to think about, well, what if I did lose my job unexpectedly? It felt like a good thing to have six months of cash around. But on the same note, I always felt like I was still being too conservative because I had plenty of credit available to me. Uh, and, and low interest rates. And I certainly could access money, but I guess it came down to security. I mean, how did you feel about it? Because you went from a traditional career to starting something up yourself and then becoming successful. Did your feelings change over time? I mean, I'm going to be honest here. I never had like a six month emergency fund. And and maybe this speaks to some people who are earlier on in their path. Yeah. You know, my wife and I, started our careers not earning much like everybody does pretty right. much and the thought of trying to save up six months of expenses on top of sure what i thought was a more important goal which was to start investing at an early age because those are kind of two competing things right here right yeah they're always saying like you know save that first dollar and get that to work for you because the the earlier you start it the more leverage you have there i was just looking at i was way more excited about the thought of being able to invest some of that money than yeah. I was about building up some emergency fund for, you know, when you're young, d yeah. you haven't seen a lot of emergencies. You haven't seen True. the car really, you know, break down on the highway. You haven't had to do the emergency well, hold repair. On. Or, well, I think you must have drove better cars than me because I broke down on the highway a number of times. Thank yeah, but, you very much. <laughs> really? So you tapped into your emergency fund for that? No. <laughs> I mean, I never did. I said it felt like the right thing to do. It doesn't mean it actually practically had a lot of utility. I think for me, honestly, it was like some kind of security blanket, if I'm being honest. 
Yeah. Well, but I mean, so early in your career, you, you built up this emergency fund and then, and, and then you started investing like you were that no, disciplined no. or, I mean, and certainly I didn't know about any, you know, thing that would now be called a financial order of operations. Um, but I did in my head, I think I did start investing early in the 401k, like we've talked about before. I had a little bit of money in savings for emergencies, but it definitely didn't start as three or six months. I was doing my investing. I was getting my match once I was eligible for a match. Um, the, the, the six months came much later, I think. Okay. Uh, hey, Eric here with Two Sides of Fi, checking in with a quick request. Jason and I love making this show and sharing our conversations, but we need your help spreading the word. The best way to do that is to give us a quick rating and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you know someone on the Fi path, please hit that share button on your favorite episode. Every little bit helps. Thanks. I mean, by the time I got around to that feeling like I could afford to save six months was more like when I started my business and there just started to be more cash flows coming in. And then I use that. And we've talked about this before as a runway. Right. And, and right. The, and because for me, like you said, security blanket, I didn't want to go back to working for somebody else. I knew this was my path and I was going to do anything possible to make sure that that was not going to be the failure point for me leaving and going back to work for someone else. So eventually that pot of money just grew to be stupidly large. I mean, right. It's just, you know, it and I think that's maybe what we're talking about here is knowing what the opportunity cost of having those funds out of say, uh, you know, higher returning asset like stocks or bonds or, you know, some other asset as opposed to, you know, just holding it in a money market fund or stowed under your mattress or something like right, that, right. you know? I mean, how do you view those things? Well, I mean, they are, they are certainly different, right? Um, but but I want if it's okay with you, I wanna come back to the, the point you just made. Now, you know, and we've talked about this on the show, you have a variety of passive income streams that I suspect have some level of reproducibility about them. But when you're starting a business and you have a much more lumpy income, it's certainly not terribly predictable you obviously did elect to hold cash and it sounds like it, it grew very large and you know it's a different kind of security that you were i don't know maybe you weren't actively seeking it maybe it was just sort of happening you were building this up but um i get why that would make sense to someone starting up a totally new venture yeah i mean and so do i i mean i but i guess i let it go on too long and yeah. I, I didn't have a lot of math behind it honestly it's just like yeah Okay, if it builds up from ten thousand to fifty thousand or whatever, it uh, you know I'm just picking random numbers here. Yeah, it, there wasn't a reason for me letting it, you know it slide by forty thousand. It's just like it's just because what was what was there, you know? Right. It's, there was no plan behind it, and I that's why it's funny when I met with this financial advisor and he starts trotting out this plan. Right. I wanted to know the reasoning behind it. Well, tell yeah. me why I have to have this given my certain set of circumstances. And I think, you know, your point yeah. is, well, look at the set of circumstances. And if you do have right. a lumpy income, like a lot of small business owners do, especially when you're getting started, yeah, it makes sense to kind of amortize that, average it out over a year. And, and in that case, maybe holding, you know, 15, 30, $40,000 in cash is what you need to do just to survive. Um, yeah. So that you're not making bad decisions elsewhere in your investments or, you know, or in your personal life. Um, but man, I, it just strikes me that it's, 
so individually biased that it's hard to come up with this like overarching rule that says, oh, you definitely need three months of expenses because right now I don't feel yeah. like I do. Well, I think you said a lot there and, and maybe this wasn't your intent, but when you talk about, you know, it's individual, I like to think about like, you know, what circumstances uh, happened in someone's life prior to today. Sure. And if somebody came from a home that had big money problems or saw somebody struggle with something really awful that pertained to not having enough money, they're probably going to be more apt to hold extra cash and maybe to a detriment, right? Because they just are so concerned about that. So it's easy to see this kind of emotional aspect of money play out in kind of cash reserves that people hold or, or on the flip side, somebody in retirement is so risk averse and I'm not saying that mathematically this is correct. This is emotional. They're so risk averse. They choose to have a very large cash position, even being cognizant of the inflation risk, right? It's going to lose purchasing power over time because they sleep so much better. Yeah. It's just anything else feels wrong, even, you know, fixed income. Although I don't know why that kind of person wouldn't go with an annuity, but I am aware because I have talked to people in my life, family and otherwise, who have very large amounts of cash and in retirement. It's just so funny to me that, um, you know, the argument for not taking that money and investing it, let's say you're 100% VTI, not investing the whole lump sum in VTI. The yeah. argument is there with respect to an emergency fund is, hey, what if the market's down 50% right. when you need that money? And like, how much is your emergency fund out of that, like out of, as a percentage of your portfolio? Yeah, you said it's right. three 3% of your portfolio? 5%. Yeah. Okay. That's so not, yeah, and I don't necessarily think about it in my emergency fund, but your your example is totally valid. Oh, I'm just saying, like somebody pre-fire. Yeah. You know, if you're fair. if you're looking at an emergency fund, okay. Well, what percentage of your portfolio is that emergency fund that's actually invested? Because I mean, money is fungible, right? Yep, it is. <laughs> and so, what you're the argument that always comes back is like, well, if you need that money in an emergency and the market's down 50%, then you're gonna have to sell at a loss. It's like, okay, maybe yeah. I will, but the percentage of my portfolio that I'm gonna, that's gonna take a hit is so small yeah. that I might be willing to take that risk because the upside of having it in the market long-term is that I'm, I'm probably good, chances are really good, I'm gonna come out way ahead. So that's right. kind of how I rationalize it. Well, and, and this is precisely the, the point that Karsten made in that series. He, he had several different posts, as I recall, on not having an emergency fund at all or my emergency fund is zero dollars. Right. And I remember pre-fi reading that, understanding the math, and it's still not feeling right to me. <laughs> but I mean, I'm totally going to come clean now. I'm sort of glad this didn't come up in our conversation with him. I'll come clean because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, even when I said I have this two-year allocation of cash bucket that I'm gonna be spending for my operational account, I still had a six month emergency fund. Wait, on top of that? Yes. <laughs> and oh, so it sick. is very recent, Man. And, and our conversation with him was a big part of it, that I just took that money and moved it out of that allocation into my operational fund. So instead of, basically instead of selling to get six months worth of cash right now, I'm just, I just moved my e-fund out. It sounds like just an electronic exercise, but I mean, it was sitting on a budget line item uh, as my emergency fund. Dude, okay, well, let me ask you this. Why don't you move I'm being it, honest. Why don't you just move it all into bucket number three? I actually thought about that, and maybe <laughs> I'll still use some of it, Eric, but it's because I still haven't gotten past the barrier of, you know what, I really wanna have you know, 18 to 24 months of expenses 
accessible. But okay, so in cash. Okay, so you've spent down six months and you're just refilling that back. Yeah, up I'm to refilling the my year. cash bucket exactly. Okay, it's not like you had thirty months of expenses when we right. were having this chat a couple of weeks ago. But no, it's not. But I'll, but but being honest with you, this is actually rather convenient because going back to that conversation we had, I was absolutely practicing market timing. Right. I so know, one I was of the say. <laughs> one of the and I'm not the I didn't make this up. There's a number of people out there following this approach who say, like, you know, one of the strengths of having a big enough cash cushion is you don't have to sell when you don't want to. Right. So I yeah. don't want to sell bonds because they're, you know, let's say VGIT is down like 9% on the year, for example, which is still, you know, way better than the 20% that VT Sachs is down. But anyway, it's down. And so mentally, I was one of the people saying, well, look, I'm, I'm looking here at my investment policy statement. It actually doesn't define, and I'm going to fix this, it doesn't define my selling rules to refill the cash bucket. So I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to sit here on cruise because I got plenty of funds. I have a year and a half. I'm just going to wait and I'll sell later. But, you know, the moment of clarity, that's the very thing that I try to avoid. I have all these things systematized to right. avoid market timing. And I'm sitting here talking about market timing. And I've had advisors, honestly, talk to me about market timing and, and it being a kind of an okay strategy. Uh, it feels a lot better to automate that. So I'm going to get beyond that, to be honest with you. But for now, I, the decision is made. I've just moved my e-fund out. It's part of my operating account. So uh, now I, I've taken that money off the table. Okay. So you right, as of right now, you have 24 months of cash losing out to inflation in an account. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think about that. <laughs> I'm honestly trying to get comfortable with the idea of putting more of that in equities or, yeah. or at least in bonds. So what's uh, going to make make that decision for you then? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, this is going to sound like a cop out. Because I'm just going to say you're in violation of your IPS then. I, I still have my 5% cash allocation. That's exactly what's described in my IPS. Yeah, but if you move it out into stocks, you're going to change the allocation. Then I'll violate it, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, here's my cop-out answer. I've been assuming that in these, in these highest risk, you know, these highest sequence risk years, that this is the right strategy and that, you know, it's already risky enough, right? We, we are not doing rising equity glide path. You are not interested in that either. So 70-30 by many people's account is already pretty risky. I'm looking at increasing my stock allocation down the road, yeah. right? But you know, me too. It, that, that's what I consider the rising equity glide path. It's like, yeah. it's like <laughs> only, our modified version. Of it. Yeah, I don't want to do the, the, I'm not flipping to the bonds <laughs> so much. No, I'm not either. And right now it seems even less attractive than ever. Let's talk about the actual physical location for yeah. this cash. Is yep. it in a money market fund? Yeah, it is. It's right now it's in a money market fund making about the best you can get with a bank, which is around 1%. Okay. And okay. Cause if, if I'm just keeping ca as I move cash into Vanguard to, into the VMFF, I think that's yeah. the money market fund in there. Um, just to make regular buys, I was checking the expense ratio on that. You and I were having some conversation about yep. asset allocation and I looked at the expense ratio in there. It was 0.11%. So yep. 11 basis points. 
I was yep. surprised by that, you know, it is. And there's worse than that. You can find ones. So your some fidelity of that, you know, one was, was higher, wasn't it? Yeah. I had, they, depending on the account, uh, the type, there were several different money markets that my money used to be in. And again, I wasn't managing it personally at, at that point in time. And I just realized as you know, inflation started to increase. In fact, it was better for me to have that money in a traditional bank money market where it was actually making more and obviously there was no fees. Um, so yeah, it's kind of surprising. So that's something for people to pay attention to, I think, as you're, sure. as you're moving and building larger cash positions, if that's something you choose to do. It, I want to kind of go back to this conversation that we had with Karsten recently about the bucket strategy essentially being window dressing. So yeah. Uh, should that give you a little more confidence to go more in on stocks uh, with some of this, some of your cash position? Because I mean, essentially selling funds, selling stocks to replenish, you know, the other buckets, it's a natural part. It's an assumed part of the drawdown strategy, the decumulation. It phase. is. Yes. And I, I don't disagree with any of that. That's absolutely my intention. I have a very clear asset allocation, which I keep to. It is defined in my IPS. And I will rebalance twice a year uh, is the frequency that I've kind of landed on. Yeah. And, you know, mid-year and, you know, kind of just before taxes. So you have a chance to kind of, you know, you know your situation, basically. Uh, and I will use whatever selling and then counter, you know, coupled with buying to achieve my asset allocation just strikes me that you have two years of cash right now without doing anything, you're going to make it into 2024, which, you know, hopefully things will be turned around. Inflation will have cooled <laughs> off a bit. Right. I right. mean, I'm hoping because that's yeah, my fire date, but why bother, you know, touching the dials? Just why don't you ride it out here? And then as you get closer to that time, you can start making some different, you know, sort of calculations with respect to your cash position. But I mean, you're already there. I've been back and forth on this in the last few weeks, and it's honestly one of the reasons that that I was hoping we would talk about this pretty soon. You know, when I look around and you know to kind of do my research on this topic, I don't find a ton of people, especially when you get to you know kind of the more conservative side of traditional retirees, Bogleheads, for example, traditional and and early retirees. Um, you know, for them, it's less about you're carrying too much cash and more about kind of these easy things you can do to maybe juice the returns a little bit like instead of carrying pure cash in a money market you know ladder 13 week treasuries with some longer ones like one year treasuries because you're getting a little more yield yeah. and so i've been investigating all that stuff but i keep coming out the other side like like what's the goal here you're talking about 5% of your portfolio. Your time's worth something, right? Your time's worth something. It's like uh, it's like that point that that kind of return I mean, are you going to get coming back to Carson Carson but like are you trying to get four basis points here? Like what are you what are you wasting your time on? And and I found myself doing that homework. And I don't know if it's just I was finding comfort in the idea that well that's that feels a little better than just a pile of cash in a bank account. Sure. But that's really all it comes down to. It's not low risk. It's the same risk. One is FDIC insured. One is treasuries that are backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. Same thing, right? So what am I really trying to do there? It, it just seems dumb. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's I-bonds and there's front-loading I-bonds and gifting them at a later date. Again, more hoops to jump through. 
But and you got to deal with that freaking website, man. <laughs> a Treasury website Direct sucks. site. It's terrible. But importantly, right, you're also tying up your money for at least a year. Yeah, and we're also not addressing the big problem that I have with I-bonds, and that is the opportunity cost of, you know, yeah. the value of the asset that you're buying. Like That's right. Why not? I mean, look where we are in this market. Like valuations have corrected. Feels like a much better place to be. Cape is down. Like, hey, why not invest in the the long-term growth of these companies that, I mean, the majority of your portfolio is in already. I, to me, that seems like the better opportunity here. And yeah. I mean, that's, it's a risk calculation for you, but you know, you're, you're going to be out almost four years, you know, by the time this cash position is spent, you're, you're four years into that retirement. You're going to have pretty good idea on how the sequence risk played out in those early stages, right? Those are, those sure. are really critical years and you've already been spending below the, your planned withdrawal rate. I mean, there's just so many factors of safety upon safety. I, I work with a structural engineer and, and he's yeah. like, he's always putting factors of safety on things, which I get, but the code, the building code already has a built-in factor of safety, you know? And so if we keep putting factors of safety on factors of safety, it's like, we're, it's just, it's so hard yeah. <laughs> to agree with the end design, which is so overbuilt. It's so overly conservative, you know? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's an apt analogy. I am somebody who is comfortable with risk, right? I was very heavy in equities the whole time um, I was in accumulation. But on the same note, now I feel like I have this whole nice little structure, this little safety system, and, and all over the place. And it, you know, maybe it's a little too far and I have to pull it in. But I also find myself checking myself, Eric, by saying, if I'm instead going to take that six month emergency fund and put it in stock, like, am I just being opportunistic? And that's, that's counter to what I should be doing. So this is the kind of thing I've been struggling with. Oh, yeah, hey, it's not, it's not keeping me up at night. But I'm also thinking, well, hey, is it not smart that I have this money retained in a tricky environment? I'm in a very fortunate position to be able to even have it as an option. It's hard for it not to feel like greed sometimes to say, well, I should put it all in, the, you know, put more of it in the market. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about doing right now. I see where the market is. I think, okay, is it really going to drop another 20%, you know, 30%, yeah. whatever. I guess I'm betting that it won't. But if I'm looking at my bond position, I'm like, well, I wrote it down. I got a soft landing on the bond position in my portfolio, my 70, 30 portfolio. Why not just convert some of those over to the stocks and then I'll ride yeah. it right back up. And, you know, because the, the ride back up typically as we're coming out of a bear market, a recession, it's a pretty steep ride up. You know? It can be. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So I, I've been thinking about this and I purposely waited to talk to you on camera about this. So, you know, we had that conversation with Karsten and you specifically asked about unwinding your bond position and going back into stocks after, yep. you know, spending a whole bunch of time, three episodes of this show talking about your, your reallocation. And where are you now on this idea of, well, do I take some of this now and put it into equities? Dude, I'm a market timer. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> I'm like the worst of the worst. I'm just, I'm just going to admit it. I mean, I just, that's how I am. And I can't stand to be where I'm at with this stupid bond position. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're right. I did all the research. We're comfortable with it. My, I'm, my wife and I have been having this conversation. I mean, we both went, we're both on the same train on the roller coaster. Like, well, looks like there's some opportunity here. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know of anybody who's not looking at this market like that. I, sure. I, I mean, it's even you are. 
right? And I you're am. in a pretty safe position. You know, as I look at the the number in the portfolio right now, and as as I look at how far I have to go, you know, a year ago, I did the math and it's, it's riding up, right? You do the math and say, okay, we got this number of months until the retirement date. And so contributions, okay, we're going to land there. But you know, when your portfolio is off by 20% or a little bit less than that, you know, different math, right? So I'm just looking for opportunities and I, I hate I to say it. that, man, but like, am I being dumb here? Like, is it, I mean, cause I sold when it was high yeah. converted to bonds and then the bond position rode down. Yeah. It's not down as much. So I sell no, those and then I, and then I buy into stocks and ride it back up. Is that, I mean, is it a dumb position? Hey, Eric here with two sides of five. If you've been listening to Jason and I on the podcast, you may not be aware that we also have a YouTube channel and quite often we have supporting graphics, charts, information, and even a few outtakes that don't fit well in an audio format. So if you're into that kind of thing, you can find us on YouTube at Two Sides of Phi. Well, it's not a dumb position, but you're also making a huge assumption, which is that you've already seen the biggest benefit and that it's softened your landing, as you said, as the market, you know, as VTSAX went down 20%, your bond position is down 10%. You said, well, ooh, it did its job, right? It lessened the overall risk so of let's my get portfolio. Rid of <laughs> But it's only part of it. It's also a diversifying asset. Now, I get that, and I can already see the people typing, right? This isn't about return, right? This isn't about total return. I know no, I you're thinking about return, and, and, and you did get the – I don't know if I'd say you got the blessing to, but you definitely got approval that if you want to unwind that position, especially – now, remember the caveat. If you're willing to be flexible yeah. on your date, because if you can't do what Karsten did and just um, switch your allocation – Right. When you get to the finish line, because the market is in a very different place, let's say, because maybe it recovers and maybe something tragic happens again. Who knows? Right. Um, then then it was, in hindsight, not the best decision because you've, <laughs> you've gotten rid of your diversifying asset and you have to go another year. So maybe it's just just make it mathematical. Right. Which is not which is more probable, but which would be more difficult for you and your family to bear that. I'm going to have to work another year, for example, versus maybe I'm not able to juice the possible return I could have gotten for that part of my portfolio. It's um, I liken this to kind of, you know, I'm in the life raft here. I got the life raft and then yeah. like, I look over there and I was like, oh, that life raft is nicer and just <laughs> yep. knife the one I'm in and swim for that one. So I get You don't it. have to knife it to go to the other raft. You could just hop out. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's an option. Just an oh, but idea. you know what I mean. I'm just like I'm not going to sell the whole position, obviously. And his advice was for anyone who hasn't seen yeah. it was to do it slowly. You know, yeah. this way you're not because the the initial uh, move that I made to reallocate was done all at once. And you know, I mean, I got lucky. You I got was, really lucky, man. You did it at the best possible time in yeah, recent history. Almost the best. Almost, almost. Yeah, look at you saying almost. It's pretty close to the best. And I lucked out too, right? I, I went into additional, uh, I changed my allocation at the same time and I was able to, you know, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be but, honest though. I mean, having um, been through this, you know, into this bear market, ridden the market down here, it's, I see the value, man. And, uh, and 
I mean, you and I both always get hammered for the co- in the comments about, oh, why are you even holding bonds? You know, yep. And, just answered another one this morning. And you have to always return it with like, <laughs> hey, the, you know, these are not for returns on the portfolio. It's ballast. It's you know, there's a lot of reasons for holding bonds that are right. not related to return. And I mean, I'm a believer now, <laughs> having been through this. Even though I know, you know, rising interest rate environment, bonds are terrible. You know, we're losing, you know, principal. Like, okay, I get all of it, but knowing what I know now about bond yeah. funds and right. holding them through maturity, and the fact that a bond fund is always effectively resetting. You know, certain bonds in the fund are always maturing. You're yes. buying new ones, and so over time, you know, you have something that there's real value there. Like I, sure. I, I, and especially the way you and I have both gone and rebalanced toward, you know, intermediate treasuries. And we've seen the value of that. People are running toward those yep. in an environment like this. And yeah, As they're they more do. correlated with stocks than they have been in the past, but they, you know, they are now until they aren't. And that's right. You know, I mean, I can't predict what's going to happen next, but I, I do like no. having the diversifying asset. I see the value of it. I'm starting to question just a little bit like, okay, well, if I waited more towards stocks, knowing what I know about the market right now, to me, that makes sense to do that. And I'm already having to build flexibility into my retirement day. I already see it. You are. It's like my wife and I are talking about that all the time now. Like, hey, I mean, it could be one more year. It could be two more years. And to us, it's more important that we have a number that feels comfortable based on the annual spend that we want, the life we want to live, the with you know, the safe withdrawal rate, the fail safe withdrawal rate. That's way more important than any time point it on is. the calendar. No, you're right. And you know, I'm glad that you said what you did there because I mean to acknowledge the type of comments we get, maybe it will prevent one or two of them, I don't know. <laughs> we do recognize that the negative correlation is not as strong as it once was. Um, we know that the overall yields of even, you know, intermediate uh, treasuries is not what they once were. That, that doesn't mean we completely cast aside the strategy, but it does mean it perhaps gives us a little more pause or it makes it a less obvious decision than perhaps it used to be, right? If you had that information, it was more obvious in the past than it is now. Um, but I totally get what you're saying because it's not black and white for you. And there are mathematically, you can easily convince yourself with those things you just set in mind, <laughs> you can tilt more towards back towards equities if you want. I think I'm gonna. T- I think I'm gonna make that move. I haven't done Are it you? yet. Yeah, Ooh. I haven't done it yet. I calculated what I need to, what I need to sell to make it happen. Hey, and you know, I didn't go seventy thirty two years in advance. Yeah. Um, I didn't, and and I, you know, it's easy for me in hindsight to say, well, boy, that was a good thing that I I <laughs> right. did because I got to ride this unexpected post twenty twenty, you know, back up. You know, what were you ninety ten then? Um, before I. Before I pulled the trigger, yeah, I was. Uh, I got close to eighty-five, fifteen. Okay. Before, and then I increased it to twenty percent, and then I increased it to thirty percent. So let me ask you about this transition point, since I'm looking yeah. ahead to that. Um, to build two years of cash, like, did you get to your retirement number, your FI number, and then say, okay, I'm going to sell. You know, stocks are riding up high. I'm going to sell. Yep. You know, well, at the time, I guess it was more like 18 months of cash, right? Isn't that what you started with? Yeah, it was 18 months. Yeah. Can you walk me through what that like actually the timeline of that and and how you did it? Yeah. So honestly, for me, Eric, it was very simple and it's not necessarily an approach everyone would be able to leverage. But I, I certainly can reference what I would have done 
hadn't I had the opportunity I did. So in my uh, career, especially in the latter years, I ended up having a higher percentage of my uh, total compensation come in the form of one-time bonus payments. And those were on a very fixed schedule. And while they were never guaranteed, because there's an element of how did the company do in addition to how did I do in my own job meeting my goals, but I knew what the floor was. Um, so barring some tragic, you know, market conditions, there was always going to be a floor of bonus that I would be eligible to make. Um, and so the last, you know, bonus payment that I would receive was mere months before I was going to stop working. And so basically I ended up just retaining, you know, most of that. Uh, I can't recall off the top of my head if it was all of it or very nearly all of it. Um, it was quite a bit of it that ended up being just what fit basically topped off that amount. So, yes, I did start, you know, retaining a little more. I wasn't contributing at as high a rate uh, in the year prior, I think it was, and then kind of topped it off with that bonus payment. But if I hadn't done that, the plan was just to kind of maybe just cut back my investment rate a little bit, my contribution rate a little bit, and then start putting it into that bucket instead. But I suppose one could just as easily and maybe mathematically better, although there's risk, just sold uh, to, to fill that position towards the end. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Mathematically, it seems like it might be better to instead of maintain, because my plan all along was to do that. I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to redirect some of these investment funds yeah. into a cash pile. But that... That seems like a big opportunity cost in itself, right? <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, I mean, you're you're balancing probabilities, right? What's the what's the likelihood of a market decline of a certain size, and then what's the cost if you have to bear that uh, in terms of selling more assets? Not to mention you're incurring uh, tax on things that have gains. But maybe you can only maybe you'll be able to sell enough that it doesn't have gains or only has long term gains. Um, yeah, that's true. I hadn't really thought as much about that. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody it's funny who, if you go into an accumulation yeah. phase, into the decumulation phase, you have to really, you do have to flip that switch. It's like, oh yeah, there's a tax. Tax is everything now. Consequence. Uh, managing income and managing taxes <clears throat> is the complexity. The, the path to FI can be relatively simple. It's right. How do I accumulate what I need? How do I reduce expenses and increase savings and just make smart investment choices by the market? Keep it simple. But decumulation is necessarily complex. It's certainly more complex. Plenty of people would still call it simple. I wouldn't, but I do have to think about now I'm basically living out of my taxable accounts. I just Tax wonder how you would advise somebody though that like, cause it seems like that situation that you had to build your cash position was just, I mean, not everyone's gonna have that. I don't no, they're I don't not. know how I many people would, would have that, but um, so, I mean, I guess it's either selling stocks or it's you're yeah. setting a little aside, you know, redirecting investment funds or maybe uh, you split the difference, uh, yeah. honestly, because you, you know, balance risk by, you know, let's just say if you were somebody who was going to start with two years of cash, as I did. Right. Or whatever that number is, maybe half of it. You just kind of ramp down contribution to fund and the other half you plan to to uh, fill the bucket with selling of positions. Yep. Yeah. When you get there. Right. Yeah, maybe. All right. That's interesting. I think it's the usual individual uh, risk tolerance. I think this is probably less of a risk capacity question. But on the same note, this also maybe comes down to how much buffer do you have on your number? Because I do worry sometimes when I hear people talking about their number and hitting their number that they're like just squeaking by. Yeah. And they're calling that it because we do get that question with some frequency uh, in the comments. How long should you be above your number before you can say you hit it or right. 
And I think, I guess at the end of the day, the answer probably is best, well, maybe one way to answer that is, if your buffer has sufficient cushion on it, you know, all of the components of it, the spending you expect, the, you know, planning for unexpected emergencies, whatever, if there's enough cushion on that, it shouldn't matter if you just exceed your number, you call it done. Um, I don't but, know, man, if you're retiring at the top of a bull market. I mean, yeah, it, that's true. Yeah. If we use kind of Karsten's, obviously if we can't, you can't go, you know, go back and look. You you're know, right. Yeah. Context is important. Yeah, yeah. But context is important. You're right. Versus, uh, you know, we got, or, a, you know, a bear market, <laughs> you hit your number yeah. in a bear market and you're, yeah. you're in pretty good shape. I did respond to a comment somebody made about, you know, questioning my only keeping two months of cash. And that actually, whenever I made that comment in the video, Maybe I had two months of cash on hand at that moment, but I don't have it now. And <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I'm just thinking like, okay, if I had to respond to somebody that, you know, if I don't carry an emergency fund of cash, how do I access cash given my pre-fi position? Yeah. And, and my response is generally like, okay, my wife has a stable job. She has steady income. I have a stable job and steady income, including passive income. Um, I have access to credit lines. That's right. I have a house behind me that's completely paid off. If I want to take a home equity line of credit on that, I can do that. And then lastly, I have, you know, taxable brokerage account. Um, and so yep. to me, the opportunity cost of carrying cash, you know, just holding it away seems too great. Yeah, I get it. Well, let, let me let me put you on the spot. So you're me now, or yeah, our roles are reversed. Mm -hmm. You're with, you have my portfolio. You have two years of cash. Wait, so I'm, I'm done and you yeah, have to, yeah, you're done. You have to you're work another two years. Yeah, I have to keep okay, working. Sweet. You're How long now. are we going to keep this trade going? <laughs> you're, you're me now. Yeah. But you have a mortgage. I'm sorry. You have to pay the mortgage. Um, uh, but you're it. me and it's, uh, it's going to liquidate you know, your portfolio. Sitting, you're sitting here with two years of cash. You've just had this. You're knowing all, you know, you're still going to keep that two years of cash. I mean, it feels pretty, it feels like a smart move to me. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. That, <laughs> that makes me feel better that you're not pushing me hard. I mean, I, I, like I say, it's more temptation than anything, right? When I see the, the market drop more, it's like, oh, it feels like a good thing to invest in that and be able to take advantage of everything being on sale. Yeah, you but do, the same you do this a lot, man. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you want to, you've already won the game. Like I always have I to know. remind you, you're that. right. You've already Eric, won you're the right. game. And like, let me, let me ask you this. If you put your wife in your seat yeah. and ask her that question, what would she say? She doesn't care. Like, it's not going to, I mean, is it materially going <laughs> to no. change your life? Are you going to change how you're spending on things? Are you going to change the trips you take? Is no. I mean, because and if that's you, why you're right. And that's why you're right. I was just. Like I say, I was just curious what your answer would be. <laughs> we're both fight, we're both fighting the same battles, man. It's funny because you know, as much as we want to be bogleheads and we want to not be market timers, <laughs> we just are. We fundamentally are, and I think so many people can relate to that because you see, people are greedy, man. It's just what it is. Just, well, and you have confidence you in the market, right? You've you've, yeah. you've seen the power of saving and the compounding of returns over the years, and so you have confidence that this will only continue to work and you also know or you believe that you know in in good health at coming up on 50 we probably have a number of decades ahead of us so you think why not 
whether it's going to help leave a legacy behind or enable you to do the type of giving you want to do, or maybe you change the way you travel when you're much older and frankly would benefit from having more comfortable travel. Um, you don't maybe don't want better to be travel seven, now. Man. You don't want to be, yeah, but you really don't want to be sitting crammed in coach in a middle seat when you're 70. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or Jeez. you want the, you want to get a nice, nicer berth on that boat. Um, if you do one of those river cruises, ah, you know what I mean? Like it's not about present greed. I think that's accurate, right? Because what what did you say well, that was completely correct? You're not going to make material changes now. Yeah. I know I wouldn't. Yeah. Especially in these first five to ten years. Yes, I know sequence risk never goes away, but it's obviously at its worst. You're an right optimizer, now. man. Huh? I You're an, an optimizer. optimizer. You just that's want to. Yeah. Big and, part of how I succeeded in the workplace. Right. No, that's to, I totally get it. And Finding an efficiency, working it out, and figuring out how to do what you can with what you have. Yeah. And it. And it's actually totally fine to do that if that's what interests you. But also, I mean, I think I know you well enough to know that you have better things to do with your time than like, I know, like wring out the sponge, you know, like the tube of toothpaste, just kind of squeeze out that last little bit. <laughs> you know what we didn't say in the episode about checking in with a financial advisor is that he encouraged me and maybe you had this conversation too. He encouraged me to have up to 5% of my portfolio in a cowboy account. He's like, oh. you know, that's where you should play around. You know, where you want to play with options, go ahead. You want to buy single stocks, like knock yourself out. You want to try to juice gains with that 5%, go for it. <laughs> Leave everything else in low fee. You know, don't touch it. Just let it do its thing. And, you know, it just sitting here having this conversation it made me think like there's actually a lot of merit to that idea. And this is probably why people like Fritz plays around with options. And we know that, you know, Karsten does the same thing because you're still getting that like potential like, you know, bump from feeling good that you did something smart or you did something risky and it panned out. I don't do anything like that. Well, right 5% now. of your portfolio is uh, your... <laughs> I'm probably not going to do 5%. <laughs> Two years of your cash position. So I'm probably not going to do 5%. Roll that all in, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, I still do have some single stocks. Uh, not very many. You know, it's it's you know yeah. less than 2% of my whole portfolio. I don't do anything with them. They're all long hold. But so I, I guess I probably have to count them. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that. He was too busy beating me up for not having an emergency <laughs> fund. Beat me up on my withdrawal rate. <laughs> laughing at my number. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why people like that episode so much. So like seeing you get smacked around. <laughs> yeah. Not, I'm like paying you to do this, buddy. Is there a point at which we're keeping money in an account that's not FDIC insured, like to the limit of, I mean, are you splitting up accounts to put money in? No, I, I don't have to presently given the amounts we're talking about. Okay. Cause yep. I mean, it's, it's below the limit in the theory. You could, right. If you were someone who wanted to keep three, four years cash, right. And you're, you know, yeah, you, high cost of living area yeah. or high, well, you, you know, you, you're a you fat fire. Right. You could easily be over the FDIC limit. And some people do split their accounts then. Yeah. I've heard of that. I've never been in the position where I had to do that. But yeah, is you're it right. Enough, is it enough to have a joint account and that doubles it? Does that double the coverage? I feel like it doesn't double it. I, I don't okay. remember the answer to that. That's a good question. Okay. What is the FDIC limit? 250,000? 250,000, yeah. I remember hearing something from someone who lost a bunch of money because of one of their banks during the financial crisis. Oh, wow. Closed up shop and they had more than two. At the time, I think, I mean, those limits have gone up over time, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be like a hundred. So he had more than a hundred in this account and it was just his name on the account and he lost the, the proceeds. He eventually ended up getting it back, but I was like, oh, that's scary. Just to that's see terrifying. that. You see your cash position just poof. 
<laughs> I mean, for anyone who hasn't lived through the financial crisis, that really happened. Banks really closed. It, it, it did. I mean, the feds showed up and the bank was no more. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. Anyway. Did we yeah, cover and this? again, more more reasons why uh, you know treasuries. If you want to put uh, talk about fixed income is as uh, a safer place to put your money than say junk bonds, <laughs> where default risk is very high. <laughs> you might not get that money back. Right. Yeah. I mean, my if you're kids, not getting your treasury money back, there's something right, very big problem. going on, and you probably should get some bullets. <laughs> my kids keep it in their closets and stuffed in books, and like it's all over the place. I feel like when I go in my son's room, I'm like, it's just cash bubbling up <laughs> it's <just> like <laughs> oh man <laughs> i have a little envelope of cash i keep in my kind of office area because if i get tips in cash you know oh. at the at the tasting room i then i just have them and i'll i just refill my wallet with that basically but yeah exactly. i don't i don't keep a lot of money under my mattress i had relatives that did that yeah or buried it in a coffee can but uh, again <laughs> it speaks to the kind of history you have right if you live through the depression or sorry your parents you know, kind of suffer in the depression, right? It's going to drive some behaviors. Sure. Yeah. I, I really remember watching a video, one of my favorite YouTubers in, in his wallet, he was doing like EDC video and he just showed inside of his wallet. He always carries 200 bucks. And he's like, yeah, I figured this keeps me covered wherever I'm at, you know, and get maybe a hotel room. I can pay somebody, you know, for a cab ride or something like that. I thought, oh, that seems to be sensible. That's, that's not a bad idea. And for well, tips, I like it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and maybe this sounds silly, but I mean, I freely admit that, you know, I, I like the idea of having that envelope with some money in it. And maybe it's only a few hundred bucks, but, you know, there's a prolonged power outage and there's businesses still willing to transact in cash only. Like in town, you can go get some groceries, right? Dude, that's what why if, I have gold bars, man. I just shave off ooh, the gold bars. Oh, you have gold bars? Yeah. I have a bag of Krugerrand, <laughs> and I just uh, bring that in my doubloons, and I bring those down to the uh, to the store. Go buy cigarettes with it. <laughs> <laughs> Join us as the conversation continues next time on Two Sides of Fi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at twosidesoffi.com.